Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I want to talk to you about what I call the power of a biblical whatever. And one of the very first things in the realm of this new attitude that you're developing here is truth. The Greek word aletheis, and this is going to help you from fatalism on one end or a very unhealthy idealism on the other. Learning to think and live in light of what is true in all of its transcendent and personal fullness, you find yourself centered, even stable, even in the most difficult circumstances. And I'm telling you, whenever God's reality meets your reality, spiritual sparks fly. So let me ask you a rather personal question as we start here this morning. Have you ever had an experience in life where you decided to take a risk and share something with someone that was very revealing about yourself, something that would cause the majority of people to react with shock or anger or even repulsion, and only to have the person that you're sharing it with not respond that way? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever taken the risk to share something really gutsy about your inner world and even the dark side of your inner world and have someone respond in a way that was life-giving and quite frankly, uh, the way that most people wouldn't respond? Uh, some people experience this when they go to a professional counselor. They can share just about anything they want to without fear of reprisal and I'm convinced that that's why many people go back to professional counselors. It's a safe place for them. Uh, some of my Catholic friends tell me that they experience this in a confessional, that one of the reasons they like to go to confession is that they can share just about anything, and outside of a few Hail Marys and Our Fathers, there isn't much that the priest will give them to do, and that's a safe place for them. Uh, some of my friends tell me, albeit very few, that this is what their closest friendships are like that this is what their small group is like, that this is what their marriage is like, uh, the kind of environment where they can share the deepest and darkest stuff in their hearts without fear of reprisal, without fear of an immediate and strong reaction. Jesus once said, judge not that ye be not judged. And though most of us love those words, most of us have also been around the spiritual block enough times to know that those are very rarely found in Christ's followers today that most of us are much better at judging than we are at not judging. And as a result of that, most of us also realize we're not going to share very honestly with those around us. And the reason that that whole scenario that all of us experience here is so important is that I think that there's something about a non-reactionary spirit a non-reactionary attitude that's marked by steadiness and the ability to not be rattled so quickly, a thoughtful and wise attitude that thinks deeply and richly before it acts, before it responds. I think there's something about this spirit and attitude that is attractive for the majority of us. That I would submit to you that the people that you like and respect the most have that character trait to them. They are non-reactionary in the way that they handle difficulties in life. Eventually they will act, but they don't immediately react to things. They give more thought to it than that. 
I think this is what, in great part, attracted people to Jesus. I mean, think of all the stories that you know. Think of the woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were reacting. They wanted to stone her. They wanted to judge her. Jesus is found drawing in the sand. Do you remember the story? And then he eventually looks up with those famous words, let him who is out sit among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Kind of a non-reactionary approach, if you ask me. Or how about when Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, denied him? Again, Peter expected Jesus maybe to be reactionary as so many other people would and judge him and shun him and say, well, obviously you can't take being my disciple. But Jesus didn't. Eventually, Jesus responded with a threefold call to love, hardly reactionary and judgmental. And this drew Peter back into the fold. And the list goes on and on. Think of all the interactions that Jesus had with others. Matthew at the tax collector's booth. The unnamed woman who accidentally touched Jesus and was healed. Or Jairus' daughter when she died suddenly and Jesus went to the house and raised her from the dead. I mean, those are all stories in which we see a rather non-reactionary Jesus and it drew people to him. And I would submit to you that this is precisely the kind of attitude that others around you long for in you, and we certainly long for it in them. And so as we continue our series here at our church on attitude, here is our main point today. And that is that maturing Christians learn to think in a non-reactionary way. We're going to parse out what this means today, but let me repeat that. Maturing Christians, I'm telling you, learn to eventually think and deal with life in a non-reactionary way. So let's remember our theme verse for this series, Philippians 4.8, in which there are eight attitudes, you might remember, that God wants us to develop. Eight ways to think and hence feel that will do nothing but enhance our spiritual, relational, emotional, and intellectual lives. And the second of these eight attitudes found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, is stated this way. Look up at your monitors. Finally, brothers, whatever is honorable, think about these things. Whatever is honorable. Now, this is a very interesting word, honorable. It's a very interesting word in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, and I'm convinced it's a word that translators have had some difficulty with, even awkwardness with, in translating. Let me explain. This word in the original language is the Greek word semnos, and it's only used four times in all of the New Testament. Pause in front of that one. That's not a lot of times. If you wrote a book as long as the New Testament and you only used one, this one word four times, that would be a very rare word. There is a cousin to this word, semnotes, that's used an additional three times, but that's a total of only seven times, which isn't a lot. So it's really hard for us to get our heads and hearts around what this word means. It was used, as you'll see in a second here, in the Greek language, in the Greek world that the New Testament was written in. And so our best stab is that this word means that which is worthy of respect, noble, honorable. When this word first came to be in the ancient Greek world, it was initially used to describe the Greek gods. Think Zeus or Hermes. And to describe them, it was used to describe them as lofty, as high, as worthy of honor and worthy of even worship. It referred to the majesty or the greatness of something, majesty and greatness that you and I would attribute honor to. However, when this word eventually was used to describe humans, it morphed a bit. 
into now describing a human being, don't miss this, who was marked by seriousness and even solemnity, a person with some gravity, that's what the experts tell us, some weight to him or her, a person who was thoughtful, who was steady, not easily swayed by outward circumstances. And so when this word eventually hits the New Testament, again, it's about seven times, inspired by the Holy Spirit, interestingly, it's used to describe and define what a deacon should be like in 1 Timothy 3.8. And then what a deacon's wife should be like in 1 Timothy 3.11. And then even what an old man should be like in Titus 2, verse 2. And in all these instances, the English Standard Version translates this word not as honorable in Philippians 4.8, but as dignified. And the question we got to ask at that point is, well, what makes these people, the deacons, their wives, and older men, dignified and worthy of honor? And it's here that the other few uses of semnos in the form of semnotes become very important. Because dial into this, in 1 Timothy 2 verse 2, this word, again translated dignified, is used in the context of living a peaceful and quiet life. Picture it. It's used to describe one who is godly, dignified. And then in Titus 2, verse 7, this word, again, translated dignity, is used to describe a Christian leader who is marked by integrity and sound speech. So add all this up. Uh, the original Greek usage of a steady person who is known for serious reflection and solemn expression, and then the New Testament usage of a dignified person who is known for leading a peaceful and quiet life marked by integrity and sound speech, and you begin to get a picture of the type of Christian who views and lives life with loads of godly reflection, a lot of thoughtfulness, a lot of peace inside, one who is non-reactionary to all the craziness around him or her in our fallen culture, one who is dignified. So what does it mean to be one who thinks in a non-reactionary way, whatever is honorable? It's the kind of attitude that doesn't get rattled easily. A kind of attitude that doesn't respond whimsically to the things around us and lash out, but it's opposite. It's the kind of attitude that maintains your cool when things heat up. It's the kind of attitude that has enough gravity to it that can take the pressure. This is why I choose to call it a non-reactionary attitude. That's what I believe this is getting at here in this second attitude. You know, it's fascinating. Way before I did my study recently on this word semnos and its corollary semnotes, uh, this, uh, and the discovery of what this actually means as our second attitude here, I actually have been using the word non-reactionary for a few years before this in a very specific context. And it's actually ironic that we're having uh, an approval of the nominating committee this week for our next slate of elders because about three or four years ago it hit me that at Scottsdale Bible Church when we look for elders, we need elders, and I've used this word with our elder board and with the nominating committee, who are non-reactionary in nature. Well, what do I mean by that, and why is that a high value to me? It, once you understand the difference between a pastor and an elder, you get exactly what I'm talking about. Pastors, by their very nature, and some of you have picked this up in me and some of our other pastors, uh, tend to be passionate, excitable. 
Uh, we have a high drive to charge the spiritual hill or to take the spiritual beachhead. And, and as a result of that, we can tend to be kind of reactionary in our temperament. Uh, it, it really is true. Uh, somebody asked me a couple weeks ago, why is it that I always have a pastor like Dale uh, beside me after the services? And I, I just said, and this is true, I said, for protection. And he said, protection from what? And I said, from you and from me. Because what I learned is happens on Sunday after I preach is that I feel very passionate, I feel excited, I'm a little bit fragile because I just put my heart out there, and yet it's also a perfect time for some people to come up and pick a fight with me. They push back, they want to say, well, you were wrong here and wrong here, and, and it's just not a good time for someone to do that with me. And, and so honestly, I have a pastor sit next to me as a witness for what I might say, and to keep me accountable, and also if the person here gets a little bit out of line, just to say, you know, can I come over here and talk to you? Let's let Pastor Jamie be. I'm not proud of that aspect of my character, but if you've met Darian Bennett, the head of our men's ministry, you know that pastors can tend to be those types of people. It's the good and the bad all rolled up into one. So it hit me a few years ago that you know what we need in elders here at our church? The opposite. We need elders here at our church that are marked by steadiness, stability, that provide accountability and strength and wisdom to our pastoral staff. In fact, there's an entire section in our monthly elder meetings that we simply call wisdom, where we bring a huge issue to our elders and say, please speak wisdom into what the staff are doing here at our church. Uh, elders counterbalance this tendency in pastors. And here's the deal. It's a key character trait that God wants all of us to have, this non-reactionary attitude. But due to the excitable nature of some of us, I've realized that elders need to have this down pat. And, and thankfully, our board is by and large made up of elders precisely like that. And for that, I'm very grateful. You see, this is something I believe that all of us long for in others. And if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. They long for it in you, this non-reactionary attitude and spirit. In fact, teens long for it in their parents. Workers long for it in their bosses. Wives want it from their husbands and vice versa. Close friends want it from each other. And get this, God wants it in you. That's why it's made his top eight list of attitudes that he wants us to have. And so in our time remaining, let's get down to some brass tacks. I want to make three biblical observations about non-reactionary thinkers that might help us understand and develop this attitude more fully in our daily lives. And here is the first one, and that is that non-reactionary thinkers make the best leaders, spouses, parents, disciples, and even citizens. It's true. In fact, this is what has blown me away more than anything else in my study recently of semnos and semnotes is how the Bible makes this evidently clear, that, that, that non-reactionary thinkers actually make the best leaders, spouses, parents, disciples, and citizens. Let me show you what I mean. Very quickly, let me trace you through the uses of semnos and semnotes in the New Testament and the various contexts that it's used in, and I think you're going to see how God is clearly saying this to us. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, semnos, non-reactionary. So leaders in God's church are called to be this way, dignified and non-reactionary, and that's what makes them great leaders. People want to follow them when they're like that. 
And then look at 1 Timothy 3.11. It says that their wives need to also be the same dignified semnos. So one of the qualifications for a deacon is to have the kind of marriage in which there are two spouses that are non-reactionary in nature, more mature in the way that they, in their attitude toward each other. It's what makes marriage work really well, the Bible is saying. Then check out 1 Timothy 3.4. This is interesting. It says, he, an elder, must manage his own household well with all dignity, semnotes, keeping his children submissive. So an elder, as we've already noted, needs to be this way, non-reactionary, but here so that his parenting will go well. Because what kid, if they're getting kind of out of line, doesn't usually respond to a non-reactionary spirit, one that is steady and stable. Most kids, if they're going to respond, will respond to that. And then Titus 2, verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, say it with me, dignity. Semnotes. Paul is writing here to Titus, a disciple, and he's saying part of the hallmark of a disciple is this idea of being non-reactionary in your life and in your attitude. And then finally, look at 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. This is to every one of us. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. Why? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified, semnotes, uh, in every way. So the reality is, is that when you and I are praying on a regular basis, when we are even praying for our leaders, the result is that we can have this semnotes, this dignity, this non-reactionary spirit in our lives. So do you see? This attitude touches all of life, from marriage to parenting to discipleship to leadership, even to just being a good citizen in the culture that you and I have been called to. And what is it that makes this non-reactionary attitude so attractive and necessary that God says it should pop up in every area of our lives? Well, think about it with me. What is it that you love about non-reactionary people? Here's what I love. Non-reactionary people don't get rattled easily, yet they maintain tremendous vision, drive, and conviction in life. In other words, being non-reactionary in your attitude doesn't mean being apathetic or distant or disengaged or anything silly like that. No, it means being thoughtful, wise, and discerning before you act, before you respond. And you look closely. Some of the greatest leaders in the history of the world have been this way. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, it was obviously a bold man who fought for civil rights here in our nation and did a lot to fight for that, a man of deep conviction and passion. But you read his writings, and man, he was so thoughtful to the issues of his day and how he should respond to them. He was not reactionary. He was just revolutionary. Right, speaking of that, how about those who led us into the Revolutionary War that founded our nation? I mean, some might say, well, that was kind of a reaction against England. No, not really. Again, you read the documents from the late 1700s, and there were so many thinkers giving so much thought, decades on end, on how we should respond to what we were trying to get away from in England. It wasn't a whimsical decision to go into war. It was so thoughtful. 
And so please see, some of the greatest leaders, Churchill would be the same way, are people that gave great thought to things. They were non-reactionary in nature, but this didn't take an ounce away from their drive. Amen? Not an ounce. And I think there's something in that for you and I, that as we're trying to be the kind of bold Christians that God wants us to be, it does not mean as a bold Christian that you just react and bounce off of everything around you. That's not a befitting attitude of what God wants in his followers. He wants us to be non-reactionary in in nature, giving lots of thought. And then another reason that this attitude can have such a profound effect on everything from marriage to parenting to everyday living, and tell me if this isn't true, is that non-reactionary people tend not to lash out and thus repel others around them, and yet they still tend to engage people with truth and love. So they don't lash out and just react to everything around them, but they still maintain close ties with their kids, their grandkids, their friends, their fellow church members. And I find that a very attractive thing among non-reactionary people. Non-reactionary people know when to speak and when not to speak. They're not bouncing off of all their senses as things come their way but they're thoughtful and prayerful, weighing their response. I love how John Piper does this in an article a few years back. He wrote an article called Coronary Christians, Coronary Christians. And in this article, he distinguishes between what he calls, give me a click here, coronary Christians versus adrenal Christians. Listen to what he says. He says, we need to be coronary Christians, not adrenal Christians. Not that adrenaline is bad, it gets me through lots of Sundays, but it lets me down on Mondays. He says, the heart, however, is another kind of friend. The heart keeps me serving through good days and bad days, happy and sad, high and low, appreciated and unappreciated. It never lets me down, it just keeps on beating. He says, coronary Christians are like the heart and how they live. Adrenal Christians are like adrenaline, a spurt of energy, and then a lot of fatigue. When I read that, I thought, you know, confessedly, I tend to live too often like an adrenal Christian. Can, can, can you own that? I really do. I mean, I watch Fox News and I get all fired up. Or, or something happens in my life and I respond, just kind of out of the knee-jerk response. And then I think to myself, is that really how God wants me to live? Because it tends to repel people. It tends to make people not want to be with me. In fact, my wife has a sign, I kid you not, right when you open up our front door, there's a sign that says, be kind or leave. That's for me. <laughs> it is. And more often than not, when I get fired up, she'll look at me and say, would you please take your bad self upstairs and put us out of your misery? She says that to me. And so I know that by the very nature of my excitable attitude that I can be reactionary and no fun to be around, even if I might be right. Amen? Because you can be right and you can be wrong at the same time. And Piper's onto something here. God wants us to be coronary Christians, the kind of Christians that have a consistent heartbeat that's beating consistently through all of it and is thoughtful and prayerful in all that we do. In fact, I I looked this week at my uh, list of my top 10 mentors that I shared with you guys last August in in a message uh, in in our Mark series, Mark chapter 1, and I looked at the list of the top 10 guys that have mentored me over the last 30 plus years of being a Christian, and with the exception of one, only one, nine out of 10 of these guys would clearly be non-reactionary in nature. 
And I thought, isn't that interesting? That the people that I am drawn to the most are thoughtful and wise and yet non-reactionary in their very lives. But one of my mentors was Carl Henry, who, who was a great theologian back in the 70s. He was founding editor of Christianity Today magazine. He was a founding professor at Fuller, but then gave his entire library to Trinity where I went. And it's interesting, whenever anybody would ask Dr. Henry a question, you know what he would do? He would respond with another question. He never reacted to even the toughest questions. He would just always dialogue with another question, and it got us thinking as students, and it was a great, great exercise for us. Most of us want to be the kind of people that others want to be around, and we certainly want to be the kind of people that God is proud of and wants to use. And so whatever is honorable, whatever is non-reactionary, think about these things. Why? Because it's these kind of people that make the best leaders, spouses, parents, disciples, and citizens. Now, if I have at all wet your whistle here today when it comes to this attitude that God wants us in, let's take the rest of our time, we have just a few minutes left, and ask the key question, how do we get this way? I mean, as I've been confessing this whole time, some of us are more naturally wired in our temperament to be more passionate and excitable by nature. So what do we do, and even the rest of us, to develop this kind of honorable, dignified, non-reactionary attitude that has made God's top eight list here? And this leads me to the second biblical observation I want to make about the nature and practices of non-reactionary thinkers, and it's this. And that is that non-reactionary thinkers utilize wisdom, self-control, and steadfastness over a lifetime. I really think this is what's happening here. When I've looked close at the non-reactionary leaders in my life who have influenced me in profound ways, and when I even look close at my own life, when I'm in that zone of being non-reactionary, centered in the Lord, what I see operating in my soul, tell me if this isn't true, is a trifecta of wisdom, self-control, and steadfastness that God is using to temper me in that moment. And what's exciting about this, when I see this, is that these three things really do, by their very nature, help us all to be non-reactionary. Think about it. Wisdom keeps us thoughtful. It keeps us contemplative, which by its very nature keeps us from responding too quickly to issues and circumstances around us. Self-control obviously keeps us under self-control from lashing out and responding whimsically to the things around us and the people around us. And then steadfastness, think about this with me, keeps us in the game for the long haul. And when you know you're in the game for the long haul, you don't feel the pressure to have to respond immediately to everything around you. And what blows me away more than anything else about these traits, and I don't miss this, is that they all come from spending loads of time with God. And there are no shortcuts. That James 1.5 says that any of you lacks wisdom to do what? Ask who? God. Did you guys go to Sunday school? It says in James 1.5 that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given. So wisdom comes from spending time with God. Self-control. You know, if you were to read a self-help book today on self-control, our world would tell us that self-control comes from where? from us. I mean, it's self-control. So it's the self controlling itself. That's not what God says. Did you know that? Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit in our lives 
that gives us self-control. We get self-control when we spend time with God. And then even steadfastness in Acts 11, verse 23, Barnabas is going to Antioch, and it says that when he got to Antioch, he saw the grace of God operating in this church, and so he then said this to them, remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. So steadfastness is a result of the grace of God in our lives. So here's my point. Don't ever give up on your devotional life or your daily quiet time. Don't ever give up on prayer. Don't ever give up on church, small groups, Bible study. All the things that you and I do to know God and to draw close to him because it's in these disciplines and activities that God is forging in us the kind of attitude and spirit he desires. Even a thoughtful, serious, solemn, dignified, non-reactionary attitude to the things around us. In fact, I got to tell you, as I've already admit, I can bounce off walls. When I sense that coming on in my life, you know what I do? I shut up and I get with God. Amen? That's what I do. Because I know that if I just respond to what's going on around me, it very well might not be of God. So I need to get alone and be with God and hash it out with him before I respond. It's what maturity is all about in Christ. And though this is for another message, notice that I tacked on to the end of that point two there that it happens over a lifetime. Do we all understand that? You know, I found fascinating in my study this week is that um, this word, semnos, dignified, um, appears for deacons, and then it appears for deacons' wives, and then it appears for old men. I thought that was interesting. I thought, why does it appear for old men? And I think the reason is because the Bible expects by the time you're an old man, you better have learned this one. Amen? And I did an audit of my own life, and I thought, you know, I spent most of my 20s trying to gear up passion and offending just about everyone. And then by the time I was about 30, 35 was when I started to give a lot of thought to this before us here today. My kids were starting to watch my life much more closer, and I was seen as more of a mature pastor. Henry Nouwen says that we need to go from being the younger brother or the older brother to the father in the story of the prodigal son. And it started to hit me when I was about 35. I better start to develop this attitude. And I've been at it now for 16 years, and I'm still an infant. And so the reality is it really does take a lifetime to develop, but that means every day we should be honing our character when it comes to being non-reactionary. And this brings us then to the third and final observation I want to make about non-reactionary thinkers, and that is that non-reactionary thinkers ground their thinking in God and his goodness. Some are saying right now, well, you just said that. That was point two. No, it's not. Look closely. They ground their thinking in God, which we have said, and his, say it with me, goodness. Why is that so important? Here's the deal, folks. I truly believe that one of the reasons that many Christians today, and I mean many, are reactionary, knee-jerking in response to the things around us is because we fear the craziness of our world and culture. It upsets us greatly, and by the way, for good reason. And so we've gotten, as a Christian subculture here in America, into a kind of defensive posture that can't help but react at times, even overreact, to all the stuff, the terrible stuff going on around us. I mean, let's face it, uh, many of us have noticed the world change right before us in just the 20 or 30 years that we've been living. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's not like it used to be. And many of us see the good in our culture slipping away. 
And tell me if this isn't true. It's disconcerting to us on our best days, and it's terrifying to us, especially when we think of our kids and our grandkids on our worst days. And as a result of this, however, don't miss this. It is very easy to get reactionary. And though we're going to see next week, because I don't want you to hear me wrong, that God certainly wants us to be men and women of justice and righteousness, who have an attitude that cares about all the injustices and the craziness around us. I mean, God is going to definitely speak to us in this third attitude about this next week. Interesting, I don't find it a coincidence that the attitude that comes right before justice is the attitude of being non-reactionary. Isn't that interesting? So God is basically saying, before you go hog wild on speaking to your culture about all the injustices around you, and he wants us to speak to them, as we're going to see next week, first, check your attitude. Check the fact if you're, whether you're being reactionary and impulsive and whimsical and angry for angry's sake, or, or is your attitude more of, hey, I'm non-reactionary, I'm thoughtful, I'm prayerful, and now I want to speak to you about injustice. And how do we do that? Here's the key ticket, guys you got to remember how good God is. When you see the injustices around you and you're tempted to speak out and even lash out, it's then that we remember that God is good, he is sovereign, he's on the throne, not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will. Not a sparrow. And as we ground our thinking in God and his goodness, this will do nothing but balance out our attitude that gets awfully soured from the culture around us. And it keeps us from being overly reactionary. So I love how Twyla Paris, a great songwriter and singer of old, said it in an article a while back. Look up here on your monitors. This is good. She says, a big part of Christian maturity is learning to let God keep you steady and to be ruled less and less by your emotions and circumstances. And she's right. Learning to ground our thinking in God and his goodness keeps us steady in an upside-down culture ruled more by the things and truths of God than by our emotional reaction, which can many times be fleshly to the things around us. So here's my homework for you. The very first week of this series, if you didn't catch it, you'll want to review it. We did an entire message on that word, whatever. And we talked about the power of a biblical whatever. And I simply noted that the way that Philippians 4.8 uses this word whatever is not as your teenager uses it, whatever, it's not as Doris Day used it, in case sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, that fatalistic mindset. No, what the Bible is saying with this word whatever is to apply it, do you remember this, to each one of these attitudes, and to dream, to say whatever is honorable, whatever is true. Man, I'm going to dwell on these things, and I'm going to envision and picture my life with this kind of attitude. And so that's what I want you to do this week. I want you to think about whatever is honorable, about whatever is non-reactionary, and here's what I dare you to do. Think about it when you're watching Fox News. <laughs> think about it whenever you're confronting any political or social issue. What would a non-reactionary spirit do with this one? Think about it when you're dealing with your kid, or for some of you with your grandkids. Your grandkid walks in, his pants are down like below his butt, and he's got tattoos, and you're going, what is the world is happening here? Think about it at that moment. What does a non-reactionary spirit do with that? A spirit befitting of a mature, dignified, albeit truth-filled, and loving Christian. Think about it in your marriage. 
When you come home and, and, and you're kind of loaded for bear on something, what does a non-reactionary spirit look like there? Think about it at work. Think about it at church. Whatever is honorable. <laughs> think about these things. So here's where we've come from. Last week we saw truth. And we learned to allow, to allow transcendent truth to intersect with our personal truth. And in so doing, we will find that sweet spot with God. And once you find that sweet spot, God says, flowing out of this, well, let's practice being non-reactionary. Still men and women of conviction, men and women of passion, but men and women who are thoughtful, prayerful, who have been with God first before we react. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truths of your word. I thank you for this amazing passage here, Philippians 4.8, in which each word is pregnant, explosive with meaning for our lives. And I pray, God, that as we each give thought to our lives here today, whatever is honorable, whatever is dignified, whatever is non-reactionary, serious, solemn in our lives, I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, each one of us individually and personally, that we might have an attitude befitting of a follower of Jesus. That's my simple prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.